Well, I want to welcome everyone again. Um, I am Pastor T, one of the pastors here at Anacostia River Church, and on behalf of the entire church family, uh, I want to say we're glad you're with us this morning, uh, particularly if you're visiting with us this morning, and you could be elsewhere, uh, but we are glad that you are with us, and we pray you've been encouraged so far, and be encouraged by God's Word. Um, this is the part of the service where we give attention to God's Word, and it's always helpful to have your Bibles in this time, and so we invite you to get your Bibles out. If you don't have a Bible, uh, and you'd like one, just raise your hands, and uh, we'll see if we can't get the ushers to, to bring you one. So anybody need a Bible this morning? Let me raise your hand. Keep it up high there, Miss Charlotte. Yeah. Anybody else? All right. Where my ushers at? <laughs> Excellent. There we go. <laughs> Excellent. So they're going to come. If you have your hands up, we'll get you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we want this to be our gift to you. So um, please write your name in it. Take it home and uh, let the Lord write his word into your heart in that way. Thank you, Miss Carol. There we go. Keep your hands up there so she can see. All right. Miss Charlotte, did you need one? No? Okay. I'm sorry. Right there in the middle. All right. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, when you hear me say chapter number, chapter 1, that's the big number on the page. And you hear me say the verse number, beginning in verse 1, that's the small number. Uh, and so if you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1, I'm going to offer a word of prayer and we're going to dig into God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, right now we do, we lift up our eyes to you. And we acknowledge that you are the giver of life. Unless you give us life, O oh Lord, we certainly will die. We are dependent upon you for all of our needs. And though we don't always feel it, our greatest need is your word. For you tell us, your son told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We receive Isaiah 1 now as coming from your mouth, as being spoken through your prophet and written down for us. And we perceive now that life is in it. And would you now communicate life to all of us, your people, O oh Lord, and build up your church. And would you communicate life to those who are dead in sin and make them new and add them to your family, we pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christian church loves to talk about sin. More specifically, we love to talk about sin of other people. And so some types of churches like to point out that other types of churches are guilty of a particular kind of sin, and those churches re return the favor. And then churches like to talk about the sins of people who are not yet Christians, and it's common to hear people say that the real problem is sin. Doesn't matter what problem you're talking about, they seem to sort of say that's not really a problem, but the, the real problem, of course, is sin. And beloved, that's true. At the bottom of all of our problems is sin in a broken world. 
But now, it's not all the truth. For people who easily talk about sin and talk so often about it, it seems the church knows so very little about its own sin, about its own corruptions. So sin has a strange and quiet career among God's people. God's people may be lulled to sleep about their own sin as they live in the midst of it, and God's people may have very little awareness of the effect of their sins on their relationship with God. That's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. In a very real sense, Isaiah comes to Judah and Jerusalem and he says, your real problem is sin. But he is not now going to say that in a way that is general and vague and kind of escapist. It's like the right Sunday school answer. No, he's going to say that in a way that then begins to get more specific about what actually is wrong in the heart of Judah and Jerusalem and what God requires of them in response. One thing that you must keep in mind as we think about this section of Isaiah is that God's prophet is talking to God's people. The sin that's being exposed here is not the sin of all those other people. It's the sin of all those people who claim to belong to God. So God's having a little family meeting with his people and with us. Let me sort of break down the text for you in terms of an outline of what's going on here. In verse 1, we get the introduction to the whole of the book where Isaiah introduces himself. And we see there that his ministry spans over four kingships. Verses 2 to 3, God speaks. And he brings a charge against his people. We're in the courtroom now and, and God has levied a charge against his people. Verses 4 to 11, notice the speaker changes. It's now Isaiah who speaks for God. And Isaiah there describes the, the sin itself and the, and the effects of sin in the life of the people. Then God speaks again in verses 10 to 20, where he calls his people to think about their worship, and calls his people to think about what it means to follow him and to come to him. And across these sections, I want to suggest that there's one main thought for us this morning. God warns his people against sin so they will come to him for cleansing. God warns his people against sin so they will come to him for cleansing. And what I want to do is kind of give us a sketch of sin, a doctrine of sin from this text, a kind of biography of sin, if you will, uh, in, in six points. Number one. Sin is rebellion. Sin is rebellion. Look there in verses 2 and 3. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Courts in session in verse 2. God calls heaven and earth, notice there, to hear, to give ear, which means he's calling all of creation to bear witness in this criminal trial. This tells us something about God, doesn't it? The God who speaks. 
tells about us about his, his majesty, how big he is, how, how infinite he is, how gloriously sovereign he is because he calls all of heaven and earth to pay attention to him when he speaks. It's striking that all of creation must be the stenographer in this courtroom recording the charge against God's people. And notice God brings his charge against his, his children. This is not just criminal court, but family court also. The children of Israel were God's children. God says, notice, I reared them and brought them up. He chose them to be his own. He saved them from slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land through miracle and power. He defended them against their enemies. He provided everything that they needed. They were supposed to relate to God as their father. They were supposed to have for God the same respect that children ought to have for their parents. But instead, notice what God says. They rebelled against me. After all God has done for them, they have rebelled against him. And, and some of us as parents know this all too well, the, the stinging pain in it, the, the betrayal that's in it. And, and God knows what that's like too in dealing with his covenant children. It's almost if we were reading that in the original, a kind of surprise there that God says, now I have reared them and brought them up and, and they have rebelled against me. But that's what sin is. Rebellion. That's the heart of the animal. Rebellion. Think of the range of things, even from these two verses, that sin rebels against. Sin rebels against God. More specifically, sin rebels against God's fatherhood. Which means sin is a rebellion against God's authority. And these are his redeemed people whom he's loved. So sin is a rebellion against God's love. They should have been thankful that he saved them and brought them up. And so sin here is a rebellion against all that natural thanksgiving that children owe their parents. Sin is a rebellion against redemption. And notice in verse 3, sin is a rebellion against nature. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. See, neither the ox or the donkey, beloved, are known for their intelligence, are they? We got phrases like, you know, dumb as an ox, right? Uh, we got phrases like stupid donkey, Yet the dumb ox and the stupid donkey know something the sinner does not know. They know they have a master they should obey. They know they have a home, a crib, a stall that they should return to. They know that there is a natural order to things where the, the owner has rights over the owned or the creator has rights over the creator and Israel, the northern kingdom, and all of the nation has forgotten that. They do not know that anymore. We might say if this is not too crass, sin makes us stupid. Sin makes us dumber than beasts of the field. Because the sinner doesn't remember they have a God that they have to obey and give an account to. It is rebellion. Beloved, never think that your sin is natural. It is unnatural. 
we were naturally made for God. And the ways in which we act contrary to that is acting contrary to nature. And never think that God is just okay with your sin. Oh, particularly as his covenant people, it it seems that Israel was kind of on cruise control, assuming we are God's redeemed people, and so we ain't got no problems with God. That's a perilous way to think when God's got a problem with you. Never think that he winks at sin. Because sin as rebellion is an act of war against God. Notice the second thing about sin. Sin is hatred of God. See there in verse 4. Ah, sinful nature, nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. You see, the problem is not just personal. It's also national. The entire nation here, the entire covenant people of God was sinful. Notice there he says they are laden with iniquity. That means that wickedness has invaded their national character. This is not an isolated problem. Everyone's involved. So much so that, again, the whole nation is weighed down. It is burdened under. It is laden with their iniquity. And Israel's sin is not just momentary. It's not as if they just kind of messed up at one moment. Notice what it says here. It's intergenerational. Their parents were evildoers and their children deal corruptly. They're passing it along in the covenant community. And God's people have become this way, beloved, because they've broken relationship with the Lord himself. Notice the descriptions that Isaiah uses there. The Lord. God's covenant name. And he seems to coin a new title for God, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah, more than any other writer in the Old Testament, is consumed with the holiness of God. He uses that term more than all the rest of the Old Testament combined. You think of that famous scene in Isaiah 6 where he sees the holiness of God and he trembles and he's undone because of the majesty of God's holiness. That holiness is God's transcendence, his otherness, his moral purity. And he's perfectly pure and good. And whenever, like Isaiah, we get a good glimpse of God's holiness, the next thing we see clearly is our sinfulness. If you ever really want to know what you look like, don't do it in the light of your bedroom or your bathroom. Do it in the light of God's holiness. For that will shine into places and expose things that natural light cannot. God's people here are anything but holy. Notice what the text says there in the verse. It says they have forsaken God. That means they've abandoned him. The the Bible calls us everywhere to to seek the Lord while he may be found. And and when it says to seek the Lord while it may be found, it means look diligently, look intently, look look eagerly for the Lord. Now this word forsaken is the exact opposite. They have left the Lord. They have abandoned him. They have gone seeking after other things. But not only that, notice they've not just gone somewhere else. They've not just given their attention to something else. The nature of sin is that it is a kind of hatred. See the text. The text says they despise the Holy One of Israel. It's not just the case that sin takes us away from God. 
sin turns us against God. Sin makes us hostile to God. Isn't what this the New, what the New Testament writers say? That we were alienated in mind, hostile toward God? We cannot love sin and love God at the same time. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon talking about that great parable, parable of the prodigal son and commenting on the scene where the son comes to his senses and comes home to his father. And, and, and Spurgeon says this, the prodigal, when he said, I will arise and go to my father, kind of like we were just singing, right? I will arise and go to Jesus. Became in a measure reformed from that very moment. How? Well, he left the swine trough. More, he left the wine cup. And he left the harlots. He did not go with the harlot on his arm and the wine cup in his hand and say, I will take these with me and go to my father. It could not be. These were all left. And though he had no goodness to bring, yet he did not try to keep his sins and come to Christ. And Israel is busy trying to come to God while keeping their sin. And they have not, they have failed to recognize that their, their sin has, notice the last word there, estranged them from God. They have become utterly estranged. That means they have been completely separated from God in all affection and all feeling and all love. See, before God had redeemed them and, and made them his special people, before he did that, they were just like all the other nations. Nothing special about them. They did not know God. They did not serve God. They did not worship God. Then God in his matchless love chose them, not because they were great in number, not because they were special, but because he chose them, because he loved them. This is what we mean when we say Israel is God's chosen people. God chose them and set his love upon them and he made them a nation and he, he pulled them out of slavery and he set them in the promised land and they were to be his children and he was to be their father, their God. Now, in their sin, they have restrangered themselves. That's what estranged means. They have, as it were, going back to being like that people who did not know God at all. And in going back to being that people, they have expressed hostility to God, hatred to God. They have become in their hearts hard toward God despising the Holy One of Israel. Beloved, that's what sin among God's people does. Turns us from God and against God. And though God loves us, God's people in their sin, like here, we reject Him in our sin. We spurn His love. So in a sense, not only does verse 2 say, sin makes you stupid, Verse 4 says, sin makes you godless. But the career of sin keeps growing. Notice verses 5 and 9. Point number 3, sin destroys. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. 
Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Isaiah asked those two excellent rhetorical questions in verse 5. The questions are designed to help God's people see that their sin is irrational. He says, effectively, continuing in sin makes no sense given the beating that sin is giving you. You see what he says there in verse 5? The, the man in sin is, is like a boxer, really, who, who keeps getting knocked down, but also keeps getting up. Now, the first time he got up, it looked to us strangely like courage. But after the man has been put down several times and his face is so swollen and bleeding, he can't see. It ain't courage. It looks like foolishness. Man, stay down. Somebody throw the white towel. Somebody rescue this dude, man. That's what continuing in sin is like. Taking these blows on every part of your body until you are pulverized and battered and bruised and contorted, really, and still getting up for more. It is irrational. Isaiah illustrates the urgency of these questions by pointing to the effects of sin in verses 5 to 9. Notice number one, sin leaves you completely sick. You see, both the head, the outside, and the heart are, are infected. The entire body, the entire nation here, the covenant people of Israel, from head to foot, from king to poor person, is full of bruises and sores and wounds. And notice now, Sin never travels with medicine. You see there at the end of verse 6? That beaten and broken and bleeding person is left there with open sores. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And sin only destroys, beloved. It never heals. This is why you can never address your sin with another sin. It will only compound the problem. Sin leaves you completely sick from head to foot. But notice now, sin leaves you also completely conquered. Verse 7. That's what's meant by the images there. The person taken in sin will eventually be like a city burned down by foreign armies. That literally happens to Israel as Assyria and later Babylon come against them and conquer them. And it happened in their souls before it happened in their cities. It's their sin that caused God to send those armies in judgment against them. If God is not on your side, beloved, because of your sin, then there is nothing that anyone can do to keep you from defeat and devastation. Sin defeats. But notice number three, sin leaves you empty and alone. Verse eight. That's what's going on with that booth in the vineyard, that lodge in the cucumber field, that city that is besieged. The fields have been picked and gleaned or destroyed. The booth was supposed to be out there as a place for people to, to collect the harvest and to protect the harvest. But that booth is isolated, it's empty, the field is destroyed. That city is besieged, all around it has already been conquered and, and now there is the army at the gates of the city and that city stands all alone and empty with no protector. It should not be the case, beloved. 
But God's people can and often are sick with sin. And God's people can and do suffer the devastation and the results that follow from sin. If we really are God's people, now notice what this text is teaching us, then God will chastise us for our sins. He will correct us. The hard life that sin itself produces will be part of his judgment. And if he is not merciful, he will give us over more completely to sin. That's the argument of Romans chapter 1. If we suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, God will hand us over to the thing that we want to give ourselves to. In that way, sin itself becomes a judgment. And then at the end, God himself will mete out final judgment. If you are his child, he will correct you. This is what Hebrews 12, 7 to 11 argues. If we sin and we experience no correction from God, then we are illegitimate children. Not really his. But if we sin, then a loving father, the loving father that God is, he will chastise us and correct us so that we might come to share in his righteousness. It's what he's teaching Israel. It's what he teaches his church. It's what he teaches us individually. But sin is a hardship, beloved. It destroys. And so the question becomes, why choose sin which destroys over God who gives life. What sense does that make? What sense does it make to keep getting battered by sin when God says, if you leave it, I'll give you life and peace and joy with me. We know we're going to be struck down by God if we continue to rebel, beloved. Why continue rebelling? Continuing to sin is a kind of foolishness that only young, inexperienced children should participate in. Kids who know no better. Like the little girl who was a, a daughter of a co-worker some years ago, maybe, maybe three years old, not a, not a fully functioning moral conscience did something that her mother told her not to do, that her mother had instructed her not to do on several occasions, and had warned that if she did it again, she would get a spanking. And sure enough, the little girl did it again, and the mother walked her through that. Didn't I I tell you that you should not do that? Yes, ma'am. Didn't I I tell you that if you did that, you would get a whooping? Yes, ma'am. The mother, a little bit sort of confused, said, well, then why did you do it? And the three-year-old, with a three-year-old's moral conscience, said, I figured it was worth it. (laughs) Until the belt touched the legs until the painful consequence of sin came home to her. And so it is with God's children. You know, it's important for us to realize that sin will take us farther than we want to go, keep us there longer than we want to stay, and cost us more than we want to pay. Do we really think we can handle as a church, as God's people, being sick with sores all over our bodies, destroyed like a conquered city, and barren and empty like an overpicked field? Do we think we can handle that? Beloved, if you've got some sense that you can handle sin, then one sin you suffer is pride. Foolish pride. You don't know what's on the other side of that sin 
by way of God's chastisement. Think of the illustrations we're getting here in these verses, the the sores and the sickness. Oh, beloved, there are many people who thought they could have sex without consequence only to discover there's no cure for AIDS. There are many people who thought they could take that next hit of the blunt or drink that next glass of wine only to discover alcoholism and drunkenness had consumed their lives. Oh, are not many of our cities and neighborhoods of our cities really much like desolate, burned out uh, areas of social sin going unchecked? Beloved, we cannot handle sin or its consequences. And it's foolish pride for us to think so. The consequences of sin are part of God's judgment against sin. And we must be careful because this sin which destroys It would, if it could, destroy us completely. Notice verse 9. Isaiah says there, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I mean, if you would know the stories of those ancient cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, you can pick up that story in Genesis 19 and follow. These These are cities that were known for their wickedness, and God was purposed to judge them. And God couldn't find a handful of righteous people in that city, even though Abraham and others pled for that city in prayer. And God decided to destroy those cities with fire and sulfur. And he did an utterly devastating destruction. Those cities exist no more. And what we're being told here in verse 9 is that if sin were left to its destructive path, it would destroy the entire people of God. The only thing that limits sin is the mercy of God. Notice there, God kept for himself a remnant, a few survivors, not the whole of the nation, but really, comparatively speaking, only a few. It's only God's mercy that conquers sin. If sin had its way, it would burn us all up completely. And that's the thing about sin. It's never satisfied. Its destructive appetite can never be filled. Just as a few souls survived in the exodus in the wilderness, an entire generation was made to walk in the wilderness and not enter the promised land until they were all gone because of their sin. And only a handful led a new generation in. So it is here with Israel. Were there not for God's mercy, which preserved a remnant. Sin destroys, beloved. And it may destroy everything we care about if we harden our hearts to God. Which brings us to our fourth point. Sin is idolatry. Sin is idolatry. That's what we see in verses 10 to 15. Look there with me. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Notice what's happened. He's gone from saying in verse 9, we were like Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 10, he's saying, you know, actually, we are Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God speaks in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, 
my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verses 10 and 15, God points out that sin cannot coexist with true worship. He points out that sin falsifies worship. It makes the worshiper guilty of idolatry. Now, idolatry, according to J.I. Packer and knowing God, happens in two ways. It is to, number one, worship false gods. That's what we think of most commonly as idolatry, to worship something that is not God as if it were God. But it is, number two, which is what's in view in this text, to worship the true God in false ways. To worship the true God in ways that he does not prescribe and in ways that he does not accept. And that's what's happening with Israel in this text. You see, true worship of God requires right forms of worship with a right heart of worship. God not only examines what we do in worship, the forms, all of these assemblies and sacrifices and things of that sort, but he also examines who we are in worship, the heart. And so, beloved, we must never settle for correct forms while allowing our hearts to go astray. And we must never plead the the rightness of our hearts while neglecting the forms that God requires. Israel had the right forms. Everything that they were doing in verses 11 to 15 were things that God commanded. They were bringing offerings. They were burning incense. They were having new moon and Sabbath festivals. They were even calling convocations, kind of national conferences, if you will. So they were even going to T4G, right? But God says in Isaiah 29, 13, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. That's the problem here. Their hearts are far from God. They had the right religious practices, but did not have the right relationship with God because of their sins. Notice how God feels about it. Did you see that when we were reading? Verse 11, I have had enough. I do not delight. Verse 12, this trampling of my courts. Verse 13, no more vain offerings. These incense are an abomination. Notice what he says there. I cannot endure this combination of iniquity and solemn assembly. So he says in verse 14 about their worship, my soul hates it. It is a burden to me. I am weary of bearing it. In our day, we talk about getting in our fields. In this text, God's in his fields. If God were not impassable, And we're not just communicating to us in terms we'd understand. We would say God is in his field. He abhors. He hates such worship. God literally says, I can't. I can't. I'm done. I'm done. We see the result in verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
Sometimes Christians like to ask, does God hear the prayers of a sinner? You ever heard that question? Isaiah would say to them, sometimes God does not hear the prayers of a saint. If they hope ever to come to him in worship without checking their sin. You see, a sinner who comes to God in true confession of sin is more likely to be heard by God than the saint who imagines he has no sin to confess. Don't we see this with Jesus in the temple? When he's there with the tax collector and the, and the, uh, or the sinner and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee is standing there praying, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this sinner. I tithe this and I give that. I'm so glad I'm righteous. And the sinner, the text says, does not even look up to God, but strikes his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home justified, not the religious Pharisee and hypocrite. And so why do you think God keeps addressing this in the Bible from Old Testament Israel to Jesus there in the temple to even in the New Testament, if we want to look at passages in the epistles, he is constantly concerned that we would come to him in the right way with the right heart. That we would forget our love affair with sin. And we would pursue holiness as is fitting God's people. I'm more concerned about God here in the church than I am sinners. More concerned that our hearts be right before God. He says here, he doesn't hear Israel. He turns his eyes away because their, their, their hands are, are, are blood, are, are covered with blood. So a, a symbolic way of talking about blood guilt. They, they are guilty before him. The, the sinful saint lifts their hands to God in prayer and all God sees is their guilt. And this is how holy he is. He will not look upon sin. He turns his eyes away. Refuses to listen. And that's because their sin is really idolatry. Which brings us to number five. Our final question. Or our final issue. If sin is rebellion, and sin is hatred toward God, and sin is irrational, and sin destroys, and sin is idolatry, if it's that serious, and it is, is there any cure for sin? Is there any cure for sin? There are some diseases among men for which there are no cures. We can treat AIDS, but there is no cure. We can work to put cancer into remission, but there is no cure. Beloved, we don't even have a cure for the common cold. So we should not be surprised that when it comes to our most dangerous disease, the disease that created all other diseases, sin. That in our own strength and our own wisdom, we don't have a cure for that. In fact, all the other diseases have entered the world because of this first and most fundamental sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and in their rebellion against God, we all became sinners along with them. And sin is the king of diseases, and man has no medicine, no therapy, no treatment for it. But God does. Notice in verses 16 to 20, God speaks to his people there. Israel, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, 
Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's prescription, his cure for sin. Here is the strong medicine that defeats our greatest illness. The entire treatment program here has three parts. Number one, first we must be washed and cleansed. See that there in verse 16? In the Old Testament system of worship, there were ceremonies that symbolized this washing and cleaning. From the Old Testament priest who would wash himself before he went into the temple and made sacrifices, to the sacrifices themselves of the blood of bulls and goats. They were symbolic of the cleansing of God's people from their sins. But they did not themselves cleanse, the writer of Hebrews tells us. They pointed to a time where God himself would cleanse the people, not by the offerings of bulls and goats, but by the perfect offering of the blood of his son. In our call to worship, we we read there in Leviticus 16 verse 30 about this atonement that would be made for God's people. That atonement was not made by Moses. It was not made by Aaron. It was not made by the Levitical priesthood. That atonement was made by Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, he was dying. His blood was being shed in order to cleanse his people from their sins, to really cleanse them, to truly cleanse them, to wash them. It's that sacrifice. It's that offering of atonement which God has made that cleanses man and washes man and deals decisively with our sin. When we say we're putting our faith in Jesus, that's what we mean. We mean we are trusting and relying upon what Jesus did for us on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. We're relying upon that to wash us in God's sight, to cleanse us in God's sight, to remove the bloody hands, the guilty stains of our sins. And that's what Jesus does. The cure of sin begins with trusting Jesus. But notice the second thing. We must go on to reform our lives. There are things that we must stop doing and things that we must begin. So notice at the end of verse 16 there, we must cease to do evil. We must stop evil. And we must learn to do good. Now, beloved, there's a lot of grace in that phrase. What it means is if you come to Jesus trusting him to cleanse you of your sins, nobody's expecting you to have it all together. Nobody's expecting you to then just sort of instantly be like a superhero Christian. And we as a church don't want you to learn how to pretend to be a Christian. We actually want to learn to be Christians. And that means we got to stop some stuff and do some stuff. And that means we got to admit that we're doing some stuff we need to stop and that we need to be taught. Now, learn to be taught, to learn how to do the things God has called us to. 
I'm surprised at the number of Christians. And, and I, I, listen, I, I'm saying that wrong because I, like, I ain't ever done that. I'm surprised at how often there's Christians. We act like we ain't got nothing to learn. And somebody try and teach us something and we get offended. You tell me about no prayer. I know how to pray. You know, you're always in somebody's business. Well, yeah, because your business is my business. You're part of God's people and you done brought that sin in the camp and God dealing with us. And so I got to deal with you. We're God dealing with me. If you don't want your sin dealt with, go and live outside the camp. Go and declare yourself not to be a Christian. But if you are Christ and you claim his name, there's some reformation that's got to go on in our lives. Some things have got to be stopped and some things have got to be learned. And we had, be better, we had better be humble enough to let God do that gentle teaching. To learn when he whispers. Rather than to learn only because he's thundering and threatening and spanking. So we got to cease to do evil and learn to do good, to learn to do what pleases God. We must begin to live a life of, of repentance toward God personally, but this applies not only to our personal lives, it also applies to our public lives. Notice what he goes on to say. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Now I think you can almost divide the church world in half based on that text right there. Half the church world only want to talk about personal sin and don't ever, if you say anything about justice, then you have forsaken the gospel. The other half of the church world only want to talk about justice and and the world, and they act like ain't no such thing as personal sin. God like all y'all crazy. And so he says, personally, cease to do evil, learn to do good. And then he says this, there's some corporate matters in your, in your congregation, in your assembly, as the people of God, that you've got to deal with. You have got to seek justice. You have got to seek the, the right doing and the right living that conforms to God's word. You've got to seek justice for everyone. And that means, notice number one, you've got to correct the oppressor. You have got to limit The destruction that sin works through oppressors. And notice not only do you have to correct the oppressor, but you also have to tend to the broken. And so he goes on to say, bring justice to. No, don't call him to come get justice. You take justice to the fatherless. You plead the widow's cause. There's an intercessory, intercessory, you know what I'm talking about. There's a ministry of standing in the middle right here. As a ministry of standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. God says, now, if you are repentant, you not only turn away from the evil you used to do, but you turn against the evil that's done by others against others. The church ought to be the most just assembly on the planet. God's people are here being called to be the most righteous people among all the nations. Not as some political program but as an effect of knowing a holy and just God himself. The claim to be a Christian and to be a church, while arguing against justice, is at least strange, if not outright wicked. And the claim to be for justice and unconcerned about sin is at least stupid, if not outright wicked. God calls us to hold these things together. There's no contradiction between these things. It's just flowing right out of God's mouth, one phrase after the other. Get yourself right 
and then stand up for righteousness. That should never be controversial among God's people. And where it is, it's an indication that we are not thinking biblically. And where it is, it's an indication that our own political concerns, whatever they are, are actually in the way of hearing what thus saith the Lord. Notice what he says there. Correct oppression. Stop the oppressor. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So let me just, I gather you can take this from what I've already said, but just, just to make it plain. Do not trust any Christian leader who tells you justice is no Christian duty or that to care about these things is to believe a different gospel. Beloved, it is to believe your Bible and your God. And do not let someone tell you that this is just Old Testament Israel with its theocracy and, and now these things do not apply. Well, let's call Paul to witness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Paul referring to these things says, these things took place as examples for us that we, the church, might not desire evil as they did. And then he says in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This means that Isaiah is Christian scripture when we read it in the light of who Jesus is and what he has done. But more than that, we don't have to stop with Paul. We can go to James chapter 2. Where James says there, you show favoritism in your assembly. You have the rich people come down, sit up front. You say the poor people go back there in the back. He said that's partiality. That's not like God. And this is what James says in James 2.6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? This is not just something in God's old covenant people. This is something that God addresses in the new covenant with his church. And we don't want to repeat Israel's mistake here of offering vain worship to God. The repentance of God's people is incomplete if it does not include turning toward justice for the vulnerable and standing up against those who oppress. The cure of sin begins with faith in Christ and it continues with reform of our lives toward God's holy standard. Number three, we must come to our senses and choose life. That's the gist of verses 18 to 20. God calls them to come reason with him. That's an interesting thing, given what he said about sin, isn't it? That it's unnatural and we, we know less than the ox, right? And, and it's irrational. And we take a beating and we just keep getting up going into it. But, but God still appeals to rationality. He still makes his appeal to the mind. Having been made in God's image, we are capable, like the prodigal son, of coming to our senses. And and this is what God calls us to do by the power of his spirit, to to come to our senses and to, to reason with him. And to reason with him based on this promise. This is God's promise to us. That even though our sins are like scarlet and like crimson blood, he will make our lives as pure as fresh snow and lamb's wool. That's the deal God strikes with his people. He, for our guilt, symbolized by the scarlet and the red, will give us his righteousness, 
symbolized by the, the white snow and the wool. Now, anybody who has a little bit of sense ought to know that's a good deal. Anybody with reasoning minds knows that there cannot be a better deal than to be given heaven when you deserve hell. Anybody who can think a little bit, you don't need no education. Anybody who can think a little bit knows it's better for God to consider them righteous than for God to hold their sins against them. And that's why the text says, come, let us reason together. Anyone who reasons well willingly will willingly choose to obey God and enjoy God's blessings. That's what's described in verse 19. See the word of the Lord there. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But anyone whose mind is still blinded, anyone who is still deceived by sin, will choose poorly. They will refuse and rebel. Instead of eating the good of the land, they will be eaten by the sword. Somebody's going to eat. Either sin will eat the sinner or the saint will eat God's blessings. Which do you choose? All of this is guaranteed. You see the last line of verse 20? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Write it down. Make it plain. The man who chooses Christ in repentance from sin and in faith in the Lord and follows him in the obedience that comes from faith, that man will eat at the table of God in his kingdom. But the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who chooses to reject God and follow sin will be as surely destroyed as a conquering army full of swords coming upon you all alone. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the God of the Amorites and the Amalekites and the gods of, of this world or whether you will serve the one true and living God with heart, head, and hands. The results are not equal. Serve the false gods and you will be consumed by sin. Serve the true God and you will never die. Believe in Christ and live. Repent of sin and live. Follow Jesus and though it be hard, you will live. Today, God sits before you blessings in life, cursings in death. Choose life. Choose blessing. Choose Christ. Believe on him. Forsake your sin and live. Let's pray again. Well, Father, we thank you for this sweet exchange.